0: Dear congregation, do you long for the city of God? Do you long for the city that in the words of Augustine of Hippo still lives by faith in this transitory course of time? Do we wish for the city that lives forever in the hearts of God's people? As we can all admit, and as children of our own times, there are many things contending for the removal of eternity from before our eyes and from within our hearts. On the one hand, increasingly more things portray our time on earth as ideal, even to the point where believers wonder if heaven can be any better or even more significant. On the other hand, afflictions and trials can be so vivid and so troubling that entertainment and self-satisfaction become a necessary but yet temporary solution or relief. Furthermore, our eyes may be so captivated by our earthly enterprises or belonging that our expectations do not stretch beyond our life span. Whatever the reason, Satan is certainly making us long and hope for the city of God less and less each time. Through this morning's text, we are instructed to desire to seek a country, a better country, a heavenly country, or the blessed city of God. According to our passage this morning, the Christian faith entails more than justification and more than sanctification. Christian faith in our passage is portrayed as a transition, as a progress a movement from earth to heaven, from time to eternity, from the rubble of a fallen world to the glittering streets of the new Jerusalem. And according to our text, this transition contains three major elements there is a pilgrimage of faith, there is a perseverance of faith, and there is a pursuit. Let us begin by taking a look at the pilgrimage of faith, which we can find in verses 13 and 14 in Hebrews chapter 11. Dear congregation, perhaps as we know or as we have heard, the main theme of the book of Hebrews is Christ is more excellent or Christ is superior when compared to the angels. When compared to Moses and when compared to the Levitical high priest, the conclusion of the author of Hebrews is always the same. To all these, Christ is superior or more excellent. Both in his person and in his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ is more excellent. Hebrews 8, verse 6 says, But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And what we find in chapter 11 is that faith is the more excellent means to become the object of the ministry of the more excellent mediator. It is through faith that we people can become the object of the ministry of God's high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme high priest. It is by faith that we can receive Jesus and that we can become object of his ministry. However, because approaching God by faith might sound like a novelty or an innovation for the Hebrew congregation, then the author is trying to convey an emphasis that from beginning, from the beginning of Israel's history of redemption to the end, the just has lived by faith. And that is the point or the goal of Hebrews chapter 11, by employing a poetic and rhythmic language The author of Hebrews tries to mark in his audience's mind that glorious truth that the just has always lived by faith. Let me ask you a question. Are there any psalters or hymns that because of their repetitive rhythm or melody or even lyrics are sticky, are easy for you to remember? This is the same that the author of Hebrews is trying to do. And we find this brief but powerful expression constantly repeated with poetic language in Hebrews 11. By faith, by faith, by faith. This is the point of Hebrews 11. And in an effort to make clear to his readers that Christians must live by faith, then the author used the Greek language. In a similar way. And in the list of examples that the author provides to prove his point, we find our passage. Verses 13 through 16. From verse 8 to verse 12, the patriarchs are described as pilgrims. And from verse 17 to verse 22, their manifestations of faith are portrayed by the author. It is then from verses 13 through 16 that we find what some commentators consider an interlude. Again, using uh, musical allegories, when we are listening to a psalter or to a hymn, and there is a section in which only instruments play, this is called an interlude, but usually an interlude announces a following Section, a new segment in the song. In the same way, verses 13 through 16 set the principle or the musical tone by which the patriarchs would respond once their faith would be tested. In verse 17, we begin to see how Abraham was tested and how he responded. How did he do it? He, do, he did it by the principle of considering himself a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. But it is interesting that our passage begins with the words, these all died in faith. Verse 13. Because of the context, we understand that this all refers only to the patriarchs because we know that Enoch, he didn't see that. He walked closely With the Lord, and then he was translated, is what we read. But the patriarchs died, they died on a pilgrimage. They died in their pursuit of the promised land. As verse 14 recalls, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. So that's how the patriarchs found their death. They were seeking the country of the promise, the land of the promise. And because of the different references, we see that in the New Testament, n- us New Covenant believers, we, as children of Abraham, by faith, we become heirs of the new heavens and the new earth, to which the land of promise partially pointed to. And the word partially is suitable here because Christ is And he will always be the ultimate rest of the believers. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Romans 4, 13. A promise was made to Abraham that he should be the heir, not of Canaan, but of the world. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we as children of Abraham, by faith become heirs of that glorious new world which makes us pilgrims and strangers on this earth. And there are six different characteristics or actions that we can find in verse 13, which we can reflect upon. First, there is a death in faith. We see these all died in faith. The main verb of the whole verse 13 is actually died, but the subsequent description, those characteristics that we find in verse 13 is so comprehensive that it embraces not only someone's death, but summarizes one's way of life. From the Greek, the initial sentence says, according to faith, all this died, which proves that they lived believing and they died believing. They all died believers. And congregation, this speaks powerfully to us because as important as is our beginning in our Christian race, our end is always important. In the Christian race, it is important how you finish your race. May the Lord keep you so that all of us, May die in faith as the patriarchs did. May the Lord help us to meet death in faith, awaiting for the fulfillment of the promises of the Lord as the patriarchs did. Secondly, there is a reception of the promises in faith. Why? Because the patriarchs, they did not possess the land themselves. They died without having actually and physically receiving the promise. They did not see a multitude of descendants with their own eyes. And they did not see all the nations being blessed by their seed, our Lord Jesus Christ. They saw glimpses of it, but not its total fulfillment. Believers today too even though we have efficacious access to the promises attached to Christ in His gospel, even though we have been redeemed and we have been secured, and all the promises to us are yea and amen in Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which we await for a fuller manifestation of those promises. We await for the day in which we will be fully redeemed from sin in which we don't have to struggle with our remaining sin, with unbelief, with doubt, with the world, with Satan. Don't you long for that time in which you can see Christ face to face and where you will have no relation with your sin. And then Christ will be all in all. We have access to those promises for His gospel, but we are waiting for a more comprehensive access to those promises. Thirdly, there is an observation, seeing of the promises in faith. We will address this in the next point, but brethren, let us intentionally behold the scriptural promises and descriptions of the new Jerusalem. Let me ask you the question, when was the last time that you spent some minutes reading Revelation 21 or 22? When was the last time that you saw a glimpse of the city of God that is awaiting for us, believers, that awaits for you, dear believer? Fourthly, there is a persuasion in faith. As the Heidelberg Catechism defines true saving faith, There is knowledge, assent, and heartfelt trust. And the patriarchs embraced with their hearts the promises that the Lord made to them. After reading God's word and learning of the gospel promises, we consider them true. But even more, we rest in the fact that we are of those who need such a Savior. We are of those who need such promises. But it does not end There, God is able and willing to apply Christ's work on the hearts of sinners like you and like me. Fifthly, there is an embracing or greeting of the promises. This Greek term points to literally waving your hand. At that time, if someone left his town for a while, and then upon the return of this person to his hometown, then when that person could see his town from afar, the person used to wave his hand, greeting his own town. We can perhaps testify of this with our children. When we leave our home for a vacation trip, and we are returning, once our children see their own home or their own town, they start waving with their hands because they long to return to their home. So this is what we find here. The patriarchs saw the land of the promise in faith, and they greeted the land of the promise. They greeted their own land in faith, in patience, knowing that one day they would be there, they would have access to that place. Sixthly, there is a confession of faith, at the end of verse six to, of verse thirteen, we find and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, as the Belgic confession states, we confess with our mouths what we believe with our hearts, so what comes out of our mouths is what is inside of our hearts, brothers and sisters, what are we in our hearts because what we have been reading and meditating on is telling us who and what we are we believers we who have our identity in Christ we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth this truth is related to our own identity who we are and what we are. We have been rescued from our past manner of life and we are on our way home. It doesn't mean, however, that the road is easy or that the road is plain. But there is a clear conclusion so far. We need to see ourselves more and more as citizens of heaven. Whatever may hinder our pilgrimage is something that needs to be dealt with, both internally and externally. Peter, for instance, said in 1 Peter 2:11, Dearly beloved, I beseech thee as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Even though the end of our pilgrimage is glorious, there are difficulties, however, and those sometimes can seem impossible to overcome or impossible to surpass. Thus we move to our second point, the perseverance of faith, which we can find in verse 15. Another reason why faith is so stressed in chapter 11 is that the Hebrews were being greatly afflicted by their own Hebrew believers were being persecuted by ethnic Hebrews. The Hebrew church was being greatly afflicted on account of their faith, even so to the point that many returned to the Old Testament ceremonial system. But then the author in chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, urges the Hebrews by saying, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe for the saving of the soul. This explains why some of the situations that the author of Hebrews chose to explain or expound faith were actually tests of faith. Verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten Son. Faith must persevere through trials. And that is the message the author is also trying to convey in Hebrews 11. And the key to perseverance, as we can see it in our passage, we can find that in verse 15 more specifically in the words, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out. This is an evident contrast between the patriarchs and the people of Israel after God delivered them from the land of Egypt. Do you perhaps remember that whenever they were tried by the Lord in the wilderness, their words always revealed a strong desire to return to Egypt when pharaoh went after them in his chariots what did the people say to moses exodus 14 verses 11 and 12 has thou taken us away to die in the wilderness wherefore thou hast dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of egypt for it had been better for us to serve the egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. Two months after being redeemed, they murmured again and said unto Moses, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, when they had a lot of meat, and when we did eat bread to the full. So whenever the people were tried in the wilderness, what came to their mind? immediately to their minds came their images of Egypt. They always wanted to go back to Egypt. But there is a contrast with the patriarchs here, as we find in verse 15. Whenever they were tried, they were not mindful of the country that they came out of. And such must be our mindset. As Colossians 3.1 says, if ye be risen with Christ, seek not things which seek, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on the things above and not on things of the earth. Now brothers and sisters, if you ask, well, how do I get a heavenly mindset? How do I stop thinking about this world? And how do I become a person increasingly concerned for the things above, where Christ is at the right hand of the Father? Remember that one of the gospel calls that we have as believers is in Romans 12, verse 2, and we are called to renew our understanding because of the mercies of God. We need to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. But that will be done insofar as we transform our understanding. After transforming our minds, then our bodies will begin to resemble more what pleases the Lord and less the world that surrounds us. So the answer might sound common to you. How do we get a heavenly mindset? Well, inform your mind constantly with the truth of the Scripture, of the Word of God. And as common as it may sound to you, certainly there is no substitute for the power and the influence of the Word of God in our lives. How earthly we become when we get away from the Scripture. It is said about um, Robert Murray Machain, Andrew Bonner wrote that his morning hours were set apart for the nourishment of his soul with the purpose of giving the eye the habit or the habit of looking upward all day. This is certainly true. Scriptures give us an eye. To eternity. Have you ever used a telescope? Through a telescope, you can see objects that are immense and that are far distant from us. But with the telescope, you can see them from close, as if they were right here in front of us. In a similar way, the scriptures bring the immensity of eternity right before our eyes, right before us close to us. So keep yourself in the Word. Keep yourself with this telescope who can always bring the immensity and the reality of eternity right before your eyes. And the references that we find to seeing in chapter 11 are very important. Verse 1, chapter 11 tells us that faith is the substance of the things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So faith, even though the natural eye cannot see, faith provides evidence so that the spiritual eye may see the reality of the things hoped for. Verse 3, for example... Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen, everything we see, were made of things which do not appear. Verse 7 tells us that by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Remember when the Lord commissioned Noah to build the ark, there was no water there was no rain. Everything was by faith. But the judgment was coming. And Noah, by faith, embraced the things that at that moment his eyes couldn't see. And it was by faith that the Lord saved him through judgment with the diligence. Verse 27, and perhaps one of the most beautiful references to seeing in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing he who is invisible. Can you see the beauty of faith and the beauty of our object of faith? Faith sees God. Faith sees the Lord in his faithfulness. Even though our natural eye cannot see, faith continues to see He who is faithful, He who has promised. There is a holy tension, so to say, in which we are always seeing the one who is invisible. But by seeing Him, we are sustained, we are helped, we are assisted by the Lord. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, as we hope to see this afternoon, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So the question, dear brothers and sisters, is what do you see in your pilgrimage of faith and as your faith is tested through different trials here on earth, what do you see? Or the question should be rather, whom do you see? If God's providential hand strikes with an illness, what do you see? Do you see death closer or you see heaven closer? Do you see God furthering the image of his son in you? Yes, we are in the midst of our trials. We hardly can get our head out of the waters. We can hardly take a breath. But whom are we seeing? And what are the purposes the Lord has for allowing hardships to come to our life? if we are anchored and rooted in an understanding that the Lord is good and that the Lord is sovereign, then He is pursuing good purposes with whatever He allows and He brings into our lives. Do you see that perhaps illness is just an instrument of the Lord to make you more like Christ? Do you see God calling you at, and your family's attention to the reality of eternity? Illnesses are powerful to show us that there's, there's have to be something else than just this life. There's have to be something else. And that answer, we find it in the Lord. Do you see God using you to reveal himself to others? When scarcity knocks on your door, do you see the pantry half empty? Or you see that the Lord is teaching you dependence, that God is calling you to his presence so that you may ask from him whatever you may need? Do you see Jehovah Jireh? When you experience uncertainty about the future, what do you see? Perhaps you see different roads, different options that you have in life, decisions to make, but you have no clarity. Well, do you see an opportunity to depend on God and experience His paternal care? When God blesses you with abundance, what do you see? Do you see as Nebuchadnezzar that which my hand has built? Or you see a gracious and faithful God entrusting you with what belongs to him? Do you see the gift or the giver? Congregation, when we see the deconstruction of our society, such as we are facing... What do we see? Whom do we see? Do we see he that sitteth in the heavens and his king as set upon his holy hill? Let me ask you the question, brothers and sisters. When was the last time that you saw the new Jerusalem? When was the last time that you read And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. And the twelve gates were all manner of precious stones. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten the city. When was the last time that you saw, that you rejoiced? And that you yearned for the city of God. When was the last time. That you expressed the Lord. Your desire to be in your heavenly city. In your city. Yes we have a commission to be in this world. And to serve the Lord here in this world. As long as he gives us life. We need to be responsible, and we need to do whatever He calls us to do. But isn't the city of God a comfort that helps us overcome any type of hardships here on earth? Isn't the longing to be with the Lord in His holy city what fills us with strength to continue to be faithful until the day in which we can see him face to face. Because ultimately speaking. It's not about a city. It's not about a place as beautiful as it is. But it is about a person. Our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Faith as we saw. Is the substance of things hoped for. And as one commentator said. faith causes the thing hoped for, though not yet actually existing, to exist in the mind of the believer, who ascends firmly to the promises of God as if he saw the blessings promised already present. So in a way, what the author is saying is that faith allows us to see the new Jerusalem. Faith is Is the material that gives shape to the streets, to the foundations, to the gates. It's almost as if we had the New Jerusalem across the street because faith allows us to see that city as being already present. It's just there, it's just there waiting for us. And this is not about speculation or imagination, but this is the scriptural description. Of the place. Faith gives real substance to the things that we hope for. But faith not only sees, faith desires. And, congregation, before moving to our third point, I would like to ask that we may sing Psalter 192, Psalter 192, stanzas 5 and 6 before moving to the third point, the pursuit of faith. Psalter 192, Stanzas 5 and 6. It is told about a young Scottish minister whose name was Andrew Gray from the 17th century who died at the age of 22 that he so longed for heaven that when he died, his congregation thought that the Lord was granting him his desire. And the reason why the patriarchs confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth is because they were not mindful of the place they came out of but the only thing that there was in their mind was the city that the Lord himself was preparing for them as hebrews 13:14 says for here we have no continuing city but we seek one to come from the Greek, the term desire, which we find in verse 16, pictures someone not only with a, a feeling to achieve or to get something, but also portrays a person stretching out his hands. So the desire that we find in verse 16 speaks not only about something that you want, but also speaks about employing the means to achieve that which you want the term not only included includes something felt it also includes the means both the desire and the pursuit of that desire are undertaken in faith and from our text we also understand that the heavenly country is desired and is pursued in a covenantal or congregational way the word country used first back in verse 14 and then supplied by by our translators in verse 16 this term country is rooted in the term father its translation more accurate would be a father land it points to a portion of land that a son would receive from his father, in which land the receiver's children would be expected to dwell as well. And this speaks beautifully to us. Because we families must as the covenant people of God we must progress together to the city of God. Parents Let us employ all the means at our disposal to bring the gospel to our children and beg through the faithfulness of the Lord that our children may inherit the heavenly land. If your children perhaps have grown up and maybe they're not sure of this, well, do not despair. And as the Lord allows you, retake your commitment to speak the word of God to your children, to pray for them. Take advantage of any opportunity that the Lord grants you and speak about this heavenly city to your children. Retake your commitment to testify to them. Encourage them not to miss the heavenly country. Let us labor and minister in light of eternity. Fathers, use the means such as family worship. Intercede on behalf of your children. Do devotions with them. Teach them to do devotions. Teach your children to read their Bibles, to cry upon the name of the Lord. The best inheritance that you can leave to, our, to your children It's not a beautiful house. It's not a beautiful land. It's not even the citizenship of a first or or of a top world or top nation in the world. The best inheritance that you can leave behind you is a heritage of godliness, of fear of the Lord, of knowledge of the Lord. The best that you can leave for your children is a big repository of prayers that our high priest will have collected as being at the right hand of the Father on behalf of your children. So what are we leaving behind for our children, our grandchildren, for our descendants? God is the God of the covenant. And even though in that we rest, we also see great responsibility. Fathers and mothers as well, as the Lord allows you to spend a lot of time with your children, mothers are too instrumental for instructing children in the faith. As the father usually is the breadwinner, then he will be many hours outside. But mothers, God has given you Um, numberless hours with your children, what are you doing with that time that the Lord is giving you with your children? Are you marking the truths of the Word of God in their minds, in their hearts? And do it always with eternity in mind. Teach your children to know, to love, and to pursue the city of God. Genesis 18:19. God said about Abraham, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he spoke of him. We know that the patriarchs were not perfect. They didn't have an unshakable faith. We know who Abraham was, Abraham the liar. We know who was Isaac, who also lied. And what about Jacob, the deceiver? But in the moment that God made a covenant with them, God sealed his name with them. And how does the Lord describe himself in the scriptures? He calls himself as the God of Abraham as the God of Isaac, and as the God of Jacob. Because as we find in the, at the end of verse 16, God was not ashamed to be called their God. God made a covenant with them, and he sealed his name in them. And when he called them, they simply responded to the sovereign voice of God. But humanly speaking, and for us, They are an example of how not to look the place that we are called to live, but rather to fix our eyes in the Lord who is faithful and in the Lord who calls us. Because the Lord has prepared a city for them. Now, if... Within the people of God in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, as we saw, all of them were called or were redeemed from Egypt, and they were called to pursue a new land, a different land. But there were many who didn't make it because of their unbelief. So unbelieving friends among us, what is hindering you from desiring the land of God? What is hindering you from pursuing the land of God? God has put eternity in the hearts of men and women. And like the servant said to the master in the banquet of Luke 14, yet there is room. August 2023, because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is yet room in the city of God for sinners who repent. After 2,023 years, there is yet room for the city of God. Like the servant said to the master, there is yet room in the city of God for those who know that they are sinners and that they are guilty of it. There is yet room for those who long for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is yet room for those who know that the only way to be delivered from their sin is by a person, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is yet room for those who stand afar and say, and strike their chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is, you, there is room for those who say, depart from me, for I am a sinner. There is room in the heart of the Master, said Thomas Boston. Unbelieving friends among us, there is room in the heart of Christ for a sinner that repents. There is room in the grace of Christ, in the love of God. There is room in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Come, O sinner, come. There is yet room in the heart of Jesus. As we can say, we, find, we found room in the heart of a gracious Master. Come, O sinner. Come, there is room, there is room. Trust in Christ and he will not let your soul die forever. And when looking at this description of faith, we might be tempted to glorify faith in itself. But remember always, faith is what it is because of its object, because of God because God is faithful to fulfill everything He has promised. Can we find in us something good enough that will make us trust? No. It's only by the grace of God that we can uh, engage in this pilgrimage, in this movement, in this transition from earth to heaven. But we have found that there is room in the heart of a gracious master who came down to seek and save us. And now he's bringing us to himself. Let us say with Rutherford, the sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn of sight for the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark have been the midnight, but dayspring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Amen.